been one of those weeks where I did all of the studying and started writing my sermon, and the Lord's like, I'm glad you did all that studying, but I want to talk about something else this week. <laughs> so, so at least that's what I'm banking on. Um, or either that or I'm just very unchoosy. I don't, <laughs> is that a word? Um, so you can be in Romans 11 this week. I thought about, I've thought about the book of Romans and preaching through it several times, but I'm very reticent to tackle it. Because it's a very weighty book, you know, and I think any time I approach it, I'll feel extremely unqualified. I already feel unqualified preaching to begin with, but um, I don't know. It's just a great book. And I felt the Lord draw me to this text in Romans. And where we're at today actually connects with what we're going through in Acts, with the church council in Acts 15 and the incoming of Gentiles and non-Jews in the church To get you thinking about our topic today, I want to say this. Here's my desire in preaching. A big God. A big God. And I don't get this every week. I don't nail it down every week. But by God's grace, my goal is to present to you the true fact that we have a very big God. I could be wrong, but I wonder if many pastors start out with a small problem. Because that's identifiable and that's relevant. We all got small problems. We all got shared problems. And in every sermon then becomes a small problem and how to handle that small problem. But I just feel compelled to think that God created and gave us his word to reveal to us a big God. Not necessarily to just show us small problems, but the Bible begins in the beginning, God, and ends with, Behold, I am coming soon. It's a book about Him. It's a book to reveal Him. Because if you and I reorient our thinking to place before us this glorious, big, majestic, awe-inspiring God, and that through Him we have a better hope. And the author of Hebrews tells us a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And Jesus is always able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, Jesus, God, is the better hope that draws us near to him. Jesus, God, is how we draw close to him so That's why it's my hope to show us and reveal to us, because I believe only in saturating in God do we draw close to Him instead of saturating on small problems. Does that make sense? And I don't know, I felt like I was studying and trying to crank out Acts 15. Who knows, maybe whenever I look at my sermon that I started and the Holy Spirit will just pour out on that passage next week. But for right now, I feel the Spirit directed me to Romans 11 through 12. So I invite you to stand for the reading and hearing of the Lord's Word today. We'll begin in Romans 11:28 and go through 12:2. Paul writes, "As regards the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers." For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too 
have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you that they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, as I laid out my intent for what I try to accomplish behind the pulpit, I can't do that. Only your spirit can do that. Only your spirit can open up our eyes and our hearts to see just the greatness of who you are. And Father, whenever we catch a glimpse of how great you are, it should furthermore amaze us to know that you care so deeply for us and how little we are in compared to you. Father, I pray that you would move upon us strongly today, reorient our thinking and our hearts, Help us not to obey you because it's the right thing to do. Help us to obey you because we love you. Father, say what it is that you desire, and please move me out of the way. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Anybody else here? Um, I'm a sinner. <laughs> Anybody else been there before? Uh up until 18, 19, 20, and until I started making my way to the pulpit, I had a few years as a teenager in the proverbial pews. They were actually chairs at Valley View Nazarene because we're rebels. But, um, and I knew, I just knew that Kurt Cherry and Hunter Miser, these were pastors who were basically sinless. I mean, I knew that they didn't wrestle with sins. I was just certain that they could preach the Bible because they were holy and perfect. And uh, I was just certain of that. And I was certain that there was a gap between my performance as a good little Christian and their performance as a perfect Christian. And then I started preaching. And then I started pastoring. And I discovered that unlike all the other pastors I know, I still had sin. <laughs> I was still a disobedient little guy. How unlucky that out of all the perfect people in the world that could be chosen for ministry, God picked me a little sinner, a little devil. Or it could be that all pastors are actually people too. That thought has crossed my mind. They're sinners. Did you know sinning isn't a good thing? If you didn't know this, sinning disobeying God, not doing what He wants you to do and doing what He doesn't want you to do. These are bad, horrible things. 
He had to die for it. God had to bear our punishment at the cross. He had to give up His life for the sins that I do. That is horrible. That's a tragedy. My sins put Him there. Sinning is horrible. Somebody has to die for it. It's either me or God. But just as sure as sinning is horrible and an affront to God, God has signed some adoption papers. Christy and I had two kids knowing full well that like us, we'd be producing after our own kind, sinners, with the propensity to do us emotional harm through their sin. We loved them before we saw them. We love them now. We'll love them forever. And that is God's heart towards His people. Towards the little sinners that He produces. Anybody else here? I'm a sinner. God, God's people, the Jews, they were sinners. Dirty, rotten sinners. I'm reading through the book of Jeremiah and they're getting spanked, to say it lightly. They're sinning in ways in which self-righteous snobs like me think that they just deserve disownment. They're worshiping other gods. They're doing it in pagan temples and in orgies and sexual perversions of all sorts. Man, they're, they're such sinners. Paul, at the end of Romans 11 here, is ending on this three-chapter long discussion of really of how it's been God's plan to bring Jesus from the Jews and what that means concerning all the promises to the Jews now that the Messiah comes. And lo and behold, He is in fact not only Savior of the Jews, but in fact Savior of the world. He actually turns out to be the realization or the incarnation of the promise of the Jews. That when God said He would bless the nations through Abraham's descendants, Jesus is in fact the tangibility of that promise. That through He the Christ, He is a blessing to all nations by virtue of being a Savior for all nations. But the implications of this means that God has use for disobedience. God has use for disobedience. Verse 28 again. As regards the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sakes. The your sakes here being Christians or the church. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Jews, generally speaking, still as a religion contrary to Christ and were enemies towards the church. It was the Jewish hierarchy pressing upon the Roman officials to get Christ crucified. As a Jew himself, religiously speaking, Paul persecuted, murdered, chased, and arrested Christians. Jews would continue to militantly oppose Christians. We've been in, been in Acts, and it seems like around every corner in Jerusalem were Jews waiting to throw the apostles in prison. Glad you're here. Or murder them. But then hear this. It warms the heart. Paul says... But as regards election, election here being the idea of God's chosen people, the Jews are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In other words, all of the Old Testament points us to this great salvation found in Christ. 
All of their words and all of God's promise to deliver and save are realized in Jesus. They, they are words that are not wasted. And God's great love for Israel is not lost, but can be had and can be found in Jesus. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Paul's point in all his writings is that the timeline... The plan of God has not changed, it's just been fulfilled. God is accomplishing what He set out to accomplish from the very beginning of the world. Jesus has always been the plan. Salvation of the world has always been the plan. Salvation through the Messiah, through the chosen people of the Jews, has always been the plan. This is what Paul says when he starts three chapters Earlier in Romans 9, particularly verse 6, he says, It is not as though the Word of God has failed. And he goes on to explain how. So sorry if this steps on some toes, but some see the church as plan B. See, some see the church, the Gentiles, they they see, well, God went to the Jews, they didn't accept their Messiah, so now He's going to the church, the Gentiles, and and the Jews who happen to accept that plan B. But what Paul is saying in Romans 11 is people will say that the Jews will be saved later when God returns to them. And I'm sorry, I just don't think God makes boo-boos like that. You know, I don't think God has to try and persuade anyone to accept Him and fail and then try again later. I think Paul's right when he says it's not as though the Word of God has failed. And that God's plan from the beginning has been to bless all the nations from Israel, not just bless Israel for Israel's sake. And furthermore, whether any Jewish person accepts Christ now or later, Jewish people are afforded all the hopes and promises and salvation through Jesus, just as non-Jews are, without partiality, without any difference. And how this happens is so amazing. It's how God is able to use disobedience. We go back to our primary text, verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, talking to Gentiles, disobedient, not law-keeping, but now have received mercy because of their Jews' disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Thinking caps. I know it's hard. Try to track with me. Verse 30. Gentiles now have received mercy... Because of their Jewish disobedience. Now, I don't know about you, but I cannot, with what I believe about God, take that as Paul saying, Jews have forced God's hand. But rather, with the hymn that Paul's about to go into, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And again, God's Word hasn't failed. I think Paul's merely showing us how God's timeline has played out in His sovereignty. In other words, I believe that God knew from the foundation of the world that when He sent Jesus through the Jews, the Jews of Jesus' day would disobey, not accept Him. In fact, we see that in Old Testament prophecies like Psalm 69, verse 8, or Isaiah 53, verse 3. In fact, God fashioned His plan knowing that because He wanted Jesus to be the Savior of the world. I wonder if you hear my caution. I don't believe God is going, here Israel, here's my Messiah. Oh, you don't want Him. 
strat. Well, what do I do? Well, I'll just go to the Gentiles and to the church and I'll take some time, but I'll figure out what to do with you later. Now, I need to be very careful here because you might say, are you saying God wanted them to disobey? No, I'm saying God knew that they would disobey. And with that disobedience, he found a way to save the world. Jews included. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. This word consigned has been translated as imprisoned or perhaps easiest to understand, ironically, from the King James, (laughs) that God has concluded all in unbelief. This is Paul's point earlier in Romans that no one is righteous. No, the latter half of Romans 1, Paul takes pains to describe Gentile pagan unrighteousness found in moral failure and sexual perversion and the like. And then Paul takes Romans 2 to talk about the sins of so-called righteous people in their hypocrisy, telling pagans to be better people when the righteous people themselves are guilty of the same sins. So in conclusion, Paul states in Romans 3, nobody is righteous. But God's a great God in that He can use that. Now, you need to think on that. I don't know about you. Suppose I made robots and I gave them all jobs and all those robots failed. You didn't do what I wanted them to do. I would be tempted to start over. God looks at the whole human race. He made much better creatures than robots, creatures that have free will and emotions and aspirations and creatures who free, whose free will becomes darkened as they choose again and again disobedience and ignorance of God and mockery of God and unbelief of God, creatures whom God's chosen people, Israel, reject the Messiah. And Gentiles, up until Jesus, reject the Messiah. And God looks at all the disobedience and all the rejection And he says, well, it just so happens that my salvation is offered only to people who are disobedient. (laughs) So, they can freely throw themselves to the salvation offered through the obedience of Christ. And so, it was through disobedience that salvation was offered and mercy was offered to all, Jew or Gentile, not by the law, but by Jesus. Let me bring this home to you. The Old Testament prophets especially likens the disobedience of God's people to a whorish lover, an unfaithful wife, a prostitute. A few years ago, one evening, I got a phone call from a friend of mine. He says he's calling from a hotel room because his wife kicked him out of the house. Why so, I ask. He says his wife picked up his cell phone and found, much to her dismay, some texting going on with a gal at his workplace. Some texts that revealed what amounts to at least an emotional affair. He told me it never went beyond flirting, really. Nevertheless, the damage was done. The affections were on romantically. Oh, I landed. (laughs) The damage was done. And uh, this phone call with this friend of mine would become the first of many. He's a Christian. She's a Christian. I don't know about the mistress. Uh, but pretty quickly, this friend of mine went through some loops. He quit his job. He deleted the phone number. He drove to another town, stayed with some more trustworthy friends. And, and I want to say that it was actually only within a week or two or three. I was having a phone call with this friend of mine, and he says, well, my wife basically says she's taking me back. We're going to work on some counseling. And I told my friend, buddy, 
saturate on that. (laughs) Really think about this wife of yours who is willing to accept you back. That's more gracious than the Bible lays out. (laughs) Who is willing to work on this with your wife is a champ. (laughs) And if she is willing to take you back after that damage, boy, I hope that reinforces your wandering eyes to stop wandering. Every single sin that you and I commit is adultery. James, the brother of Jesus, says in his letter, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And God has taken the adultery of the Jews and he has made it the salvation of the world. I want you to take that to heart today. If you have been stuck in a vicious cycle of sin, know that you can be forgiven. You can be cleansed of that sin. And what's most surprising is that God can even use that sin. Jesus tells the parable of the wicked vine dressers of Israel. These vine dressers were intent on keeping the vineyard for themselves instead of relinquishing it to the master who owned it. And so when the master sent servant after servant after servant to go and collect the earnings and the vine dressers beat them and killed them and so forth, just as Israel beat and killed the prophets, so the master is either very naive, very trusting, or very patient, but he finally sends well, his son, saying, surely they will treat him differently. But no, instead they murder the son, believing that the vineyard is now theirs. But the amazing reality is that this very act of disobedience, Jesus opens up the proverbial vineyard to the world. No, no wonder Paul would go on to state, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. You and I need to soak in these words and take these words to heart. Because I don't know about you, I'll just speak for myself. Sometimes I, I still seem to live like these words are untrue. That's a tragedy. Firstly, God is infinitely smarter than anyone on this planet. <laughs> Hear that in the wake of coronavirus, in the wake of an election year, which seems to happen every year anymore, in the wake of every single problem that you are going through, know this and feel this, that our God has depth and riches in His wisdom, in His knowledge. Now put that together with our last point, that God can use disobedience, and God has deep, rich wisdom. See, in Paul's context, who would have thought that God could take Thousands of years of disobedience from the very people he formed out of Egypt. Who would have guessed that he could, he could uh, take the people who have rejected the Messiah and had the corrupted priesthood and had some bloodthirsty Romans who come and, and then God uses all of that to save people from sin. Lots of disobedience, lots of rejection, lots of bloodthirsty, hungry, power people. You know... If I wanted to set up a church, a saved people, I wouldn't have looked for it into the sin cesspool that God made it from. You catch me? How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. Don't underestimate God's power. 
you are looking at the mess you're at and wherever you're at in life, broken relationships, continual sin, whatever, this is the God you serve. This situation is just beyond God's redemption. For who has known the mind of the Lord who has been His counselor? Right? How often are we in the middle of our our trials? And I'm a religious coward, so I wouldn't voice it this way, but really I'm thinking, well, God, I, I don't know. I mean... I'm in a mess and it's what I got and it's just a little so convoluted and I know what you're thinking, Lord. Really? Really? Do we really have a clue what God thinks? Do we really have one iota of how God plans things out? Because here's what happened. Hmm. Rebellious, whoremongering people, lots of murderers about to kill my son. Yeah, I think I'll save the world with that. Sounds good. How about this one? I'm really anxious about this, Lord, so I'm tithing more, going to the church more often, and reading my Bible more than I ever have before. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? In other words, Jesus says, yeah, thanks for the extra five dollars I gave my son. (laughs) Furthermore, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. See, God gave the very breath to sinners to scoff him. God upholds the most militant and hostile of God-haters by His very power. And God will receive praise, honor, and submission and worship from every single knee in adoration or humiliation. See, God will win. He has won through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so what this should do, believer, to know that God has used such profound thousand years of disobedience of Israel and to know that He can use our disobedience and also to know that we serve in God a profoundly deep, rich, wise Lord who is crafty enough to make world-saving plans out of cesspools of sin. To know that God has a mind that we cannot search, but a record to show us that we can go far above and beyond to hope and trust in Him. To know that we have a God who has created and sustains and will receive all of creation into His perfect will. Friends, should this not open us up to be sacrificial in the way we give ourselves to Him? Friends, in Christ we find a trustworthiness that we can die to. Paul has built his case for the church. Paul knows the depravity of our sinfulness and how deep it runs. And Paul knows the trustworthy grace of Christ that it is greater than our sin. And so, why Paul has to do it, I don't know, but he does. He has to urge now. He has to beseech. He has to plead. He has to scream. In light of all you see here, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I love how the New New King James renders it. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable. It's to be expected. It's the only thing that makes sense in light of all this. By the mercies of God, look at what all He's done. Some of us, myself foremost, we're not here. We're not here. We still live in chains shackled by sin and by fear and we're not all in. We're not in deep and we're in the shallow end, getting our toes wet. And Paul says, I, I, I appeal to you. I beseech 
you. Be a living sacrifice. What does that mean? Paul expands in a bit in verse 2 here. He says, do not be conformed to this world. The HCSB says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, are you and I conformed to this world? Since I don't like taking your confessions, I'll continue to confess. Because <laughs> I'll be the first to admit that I'm guilty. I get on the train and I say, there's a lot of fake news out there, can't trust everyone. And so then what I do is trust the sources telling me that there's fake news. And then allowing those sources, which are often angry, self-righteous, indignant voices, telling me to belittle and deride anyone who disagrees with me. And that spirit rises up in me and I'm still conforming to a pattern of this world just the pattern that I'm more susceptible to side with. We live in a world with a lot of voices besides King Jesus, besides the Holy Spirit, but we need to be living sacrifices. Kevin, that's hard. I know, but it makes the most sense. <laughs> it's the most reasonable thing we can do because if 2020 has worried you, if your relationships have you worried, if your vicious cycle sins have you worried? If your budget has you worried, if your future is shaky, if your plans is, is fragile, then Paul has news for you in this. God's threshold for grace, to quote Charles Wesley, is as far as the curse is found. And so if you become a living sacrifice to Him, you're throwing yourself completely into the arms of a disobedient user a world saver, an infinitely wise counselor, a generous giver, and an all of life sovereign. And so with Paul, I urge you, beseech you, throw yourself at his feet, jump in the deep end, submerge yourself in him. Instead of conforming to, to your political narrative, instead of conforming where fear would have you, instead of conforming to the labels the world smacks on you, be transformed. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Can you read His Word just a little bit more this week? Can you play in your mind not the rants and raves of the newscaster who sounded smart when he commented on whatever the idiot the other side of the political party commented on? But is there a song that we've sung this morning that can play in your mind? Let me be a sacrifice. Help me be a sacrifice. Lord, I'll be a sacrifice going where You want me to go, lifting high Your name, calling all to follow You, living just for You. I don't know about you, friends, but I'm tired of worrying. I'm tired of stressing. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of wandering and wondering. And Paul's urge and Paul's appeal and Paul's beseeching is a call to do what's reasonable is what makes more sense. If you need to drown in your disobedience, if you need to worry and fret because you think the God we serve is just not up to the task, if you need to try to micromanage, control, and try to get all your ducks in a row and their eggs too, then be my guest. But it's my appeal, it's Paul's appeal, that in Christ He has a trustworthiness that we can come and die to. It's Jesus Christ. He proved Himself forever when He saved the world to fulfill and be beyond all of our greatest hopes that even 2020 is under His sovereign control. And if we want to see change in our own lives and in the life of this world, then by God's grace, let us come and die to Him. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, you had 12 people around you for three and a half years seeing you face to face and every one of them ran and fled when their 2020 came on them. But then through your resurrection, you drew back those cowards and they became martyrs for you. Because they saw in what you did at the cross as unbeatable. They saw what you did as something that cannot be talked. Because if you have the power to raise from the dead, then nothing else on this planet has any power towards you. Father, help us to live in light of that. Sometimes it grows so distant for us that we want to look and, oh, those bunch of greedy mobs, they're going to come and destroy our nation. Or, oh, that relationship will never be restored and redeemed. And, but Paul has just shown us that you use even disobedience. And if disobedience is something that's not left apart from you, but you could even use even that, then what is there on the world that you can't use? to redeem and to save and to give life. And if you can use disobedience, then why aren't we at your feet every single day living sacrificially saying, I can't understand your wisdom. All I know is that you're in control. You're a good God. And what else do I need? Father, help us to live sacrificial lives to you and that you're trustworthy to lay our entire lives and our minds and our hearts and our checkbooks Everything about us is in your hand. Help us to live like that. We thank you and we love you and we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.